have a seat for me. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Um, I don't know if y'all knew this. I had a white car. Um, it's yellow now. Um, how's, how's everybody's allergies? Y'all, y'all hanging in there? Um, man, it's tough. So I'm, I'm coming a little tired this morning. Um, let me tell you why. Um, my wife yesterday, for some reason, ran 26.2 miles. Okay. Don't clap her. Okay. That's amazing. Um, the reason I bring it up, though, is because I'm tired because I had to keep all four of our kids as she did this. So um, feeling all the husbands in the room knew exactly what I meant by that. But yeah, amazing feet. I had to give her some shout out. Amazing feet. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with Acts chapter 15. Um, if you're new with us as a church, um, we, we want to preach through books of the Bible. And the reason behind that is we believe God's word to be authoritative. We believe it is how we should live our lives, which we need to hear the whole counsel of God. So instead of me choosing and picking various passages in order to communicate one particular topic, what we want to do here is just preach through various books of the Bible so that we can hear the whole counsel of God together. So if you're new with us, um, our sermons are online. Um, I, I don't know what the quality is. I, I think they're on our website. They're on Spotify. I don't listen to them, but um, they're there. So if, if we're picking up in Acts chapter 15 today and you go, I'm, I'm lost, they're there. Um, we were in Acts 13 two weeks ago, Acts 14 last week, and then we're going to be in Acts 15 this week. So what we have seen, just as a quick recap, is in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. They, they left the church in Antioch, and now they have moved Um, into Gentile regions, specifically the region of Galatia. And we saw in Acts chapter 13 that Gentiles were saved by the gospel of grace. Then in Acts chapter 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas retracing their steps back through all of those churches that they've established. And we see that the Gentile churches are strengthened by grace. So those were the two big points of Acts 13 and 14. But today, church, as we look at Acts chapter 15, what we're going to kind of see is that the honeymoon is over. Like the issue that consistently kind of plagued the early church in the first 20 years of its history, this tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians is finally coming to a head. And what we're going to see is is the church handle the debate and the dissension with such wisdom uh, and authority. And in their handling of it, I think it's going to give us some principles um, that will help us navigate some dissensions and debates that may arise in our church today. Because, y'all, the enemy wants that. The enemy wants the church to divide, to fight, to be in dissent, because as I said in the prayer in John 13, 35, the world will know Christ by how we have love for one another. If you see the importance of the unity of the church, look at John 17, as Jesus is pouring out his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. So this is, this is a big deal, and it's also a big, big deal just for us, like as a new church plant, as, as we somehow continue to kind of grow numerically, but also try to grow in our maturity, there's going to be plethora of opportunities for division, for dissent. Because as a church plant, what we're all aware of is that each of you come from different backgrounds theologically. In in your discipleship, your understanding of what it looks like to follow Christ, we are all different. We all have our preferences, our stances, and there's going to be opportunity for division in that. So in Acts chapter 15, what I want us to see are some principles of how to deal with that as it approaches our church. So here's how we're going to dissect this passage. Um, I'm going to read a bit, kind of dissect it, read a bit, continue to dissect it, and then we'll kind of come around at the very end towards our principles. Um, So what I want us to see as we read this and kind of as I talk us through it is I want us to get a firm grasp on the issue at hand. 
okay? So the issue at hand, and then we'll move to the principle. So Acts chapter 15, let's look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. All right, let me pause this and kind of give us some context. Uh, As I said, Paul and Barnabas have recently returned to the church in Antioch after their first missionary journey. And look at Acts chapter 14, verse 27. They're with the church in Antioch, and when they arrived and they had gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I said this last week, but we're, we're sitting at about 48 A.D., 49 A.D. in terms of the timeline of the church, okay? 48, 49. Jesus was crucified and resurrected between 30 and 33 A.D. So we're 15 years past Christ's ascension. The Gentile church is beginning to be established. But as I said in kind of in the introduction, man, the honeymoon's over. Now that, that Gentiles are firm in the faith, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians have, have got to learn to live together. And in chapter 15, when some of these Jewish Christians began to learn about these Gentile churches being established, what do they do? They went up to Antioch. Now, that's funny because Antioch is, is north, or they went down to Antioch is what it reads. Antioch is geographically north, and I just think it's, it's fun that the reason we write that is because Jerusalem sits on a hill. So they went down. They left, right? They left Jerusalem downhill, but they went up to Antioch geographically. And the reason for their v- visit is onefold. They're mad. They're frustrated. They're frustrated that Barnabas and Paul have not required the law of Moses for these Gentile converts. And what did Paul and Barnabas do with them there in verse 1 or verse 2? They had no small dissension. Big argument breaking out here. Either salvation is by grace alone or it's by grace and the law. That's what's at stake here. This is the argument that is taking place. So let's let's look at the debate then. Verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers. Pause. I love this. Kind of like a campaign trip. Like they're headed to Jerusalem and they're stopping at all these churches, these Gentile churches, and and continuing to build support, you know, for their argument. Let's, Let's pick back up. And when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. All right, let's let's pause here. What are they debating over? Right? So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders. These are the chief authorities. And the chief apostle is Peter. And the chief elder, as we're going to get to here in a minute, is, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this is a different James than what we saw a few weeks ago. James, the apostle, brother of John, was martyred by King Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they gathered these apostles. They gathered the churches in Jerusalem. They be- began to declare all that God had done. Right, that's really important because we're going to see that argument over and over and over. What has God done among these Gentiles? But look at verse 5 with me. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the question at play, and I'm going I'm to keep rehashing it. Do Gentile converts 
have to become Jewish as it regards Jewish ritualistic religion in order to be Christian? This is a huge question. This has huge implications because this is really a question about the essence of the gospel. What is required for somebody to, to be saved? Is it grace alone through faith alone, or is it grace and law? And church, I, I just got to mention this. These Jewish Christians, they're not bad people. Like, it's really easy to debate and argue and to demonize somebody else when, when you just can write them off as evil, right? But look at verse 5. But some believers, these, these were believers in Christ also. These are people who followed Jesus. These are other brothers and sisters in the faith. They're not evil. They're Christians. They're just learning how to follow Christ themselves. And their understanding of salvation, these, these Jewish pharisaical believers, their understanding of salvation isn't crazy. Like if you put yourself in their shoes, you would acknowledge that for a large part of the, the first 20 years of church history, the church was primarily Jewish. That Jesus was a Jew. That Jesus actually taught salvation would come from the Jews. And previously, meaning centuries, hundreds of centuries previously, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they needed to be circumcised and they needed to adhere to the Mosaic Covenant. So in their mind, why change that now? This has been going on for centuries. Why change? From a strictly Jewish standpoint, there was no salvation apart from belonging to the covenant community of God, which is the people of Israel. And to be a part of Israel, a Gentile, according to the Old Testament, would need to be circumcised and adopt the law of Moses. So this is not crazy. It's not crazy that they're bringing that understanding of salvation into their following of Jesus. And their dissension and their debate with Paul and Barnabas really isn't crazy either. Like, these guys are Pharisees. Put yourself in their shoes. They're products of their upbringing and their training. I mean, think of the immersion in the Mosaic law and the traditions of the faith that they had undergone. Think about all the memorization they had done of the law of Moses, the pride that they must have felt in attaining the level of a Pharisee. Church, these people are just leaning into their background, leaning into their training, and just trying to make sure that these new Gentile Christians aren't bypassing Mount Sinai on the way to Mount Calvary. And here's the point for us this morning. They're really not much different than you and I. Like every one of us leans into our background. We're all products of our past experience, of our past training. And guess what? We bring that with us. Into our following of Jesus, we bring that with us. Each of us brings your own doctrinal, practical distortions of whatever it looks like to follow Jesus. We're all products of this. And that's what's happening here. These, these Pharisaical Jewish Christians are just trying to enforce what they had known for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. So, big debate, big dissension. But finally, we're going to get to kind of some declarations. Look at, look at verse 7 with me. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness of them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All right, let's pause. First declaration occurs. This is from the mouth of Peter, chief of the apostles. And he begins to argue with them over his experience. 
He reminds them of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, if you remember that, with, with Cornelius. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile who lived in Caesarea. Peter was staying with a, Simon, a guy named Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Peter's on the roof. Remember this, Acts chapter 10, hungry, has this vision in a trance of a sheet descending from heaven. Four corners stretched to north, south, east, and west. And on that sheet were animals, animals of all kinds, clean and unclean. And, and the Lord tells Peter, rise and kill and eat. And Peter says, yeah, by no means. I'm a good Jew. I would never eat unclean animals. And God says, do not talk unclean or common what I have made. Three times he's told him, there's no distinction here. So Peter obeys the voice of the Lord, goes into Cornelius' home. Cornelius has gathered his whole house, all Gentiles. And Peter begins to preach the gospel. And what happens? While he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls and enters the lives of these Gentile believers. And Peter says, there's no distinction. The same way that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit is the exact same way as the Jews received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 11, he goes back to the church of Jerusalem and begins to tell them all that the Holy Spirit had done in the lives of these Gentiles. And they begin to argue with him. And Peter goes, hey, listen, it happened. And they began to accept it. But this issue has continued to go on. And I love what Peter says to these guys. Why place a yoke on their neck that, that you can't bear? Right? When you begin to read the New Testament, you see that one of the primary reasons for the law of Moses was to show us that we, we can't adhere to it. That it's, it's impossible. That I actually cannot do all that God required. That I actually fall short over and over and over again of God's standard. The reason for the law is to show us we need a savior. That we're sinners. And Peter's saying, why are you trying to force them to do something you can never do yourself? Pretty strong argument from the chief apostle. His argument was from experience. Remember Cornelius. Remember the house of the Gentiles. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. That's weight, right? That's some authority there in Peter. And then they began to listen to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I love that Paul never ceases to see the moment, right? It's finally quiet, and Paul's like, yo, Cornelius, let me tell you about what's going on in, in Cyprus, right? He started telling them about Sergius Paulus. That's Acts 13, another Gentile governor who put his faith in Christ and received the Holy Spirit. He began to tell them about all these churches they had planted all throughout Galatia. Paul jumps on board and says, hey, that's my experience too. The same experience Peter has, the same experience we're having, there is no distinction. The Gentiles are receiving the faith. So let's look at verse 13. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who is also Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. All right, let's pause again. The chief apostle, Peter, has spoken, given an argument based in his experience. James, now the chief elder, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, begins to give an, a, a, an argument based on what? Scripture. He begins to attest to the authority of Scripture. And, and y'all, this James, this James was powerful, popular. His nickname was James the Just. Many said that when he died, they saw calluses that had been built up on his knees because of how many hours he spent on his knees in prayer. This man was respected. The church in Jerusalem would have heard what he had to say. They trusted his voice. It carried weight. So what does he do? 
He begins to quote scripture. He quotes Amos chapter 9, that the remnant or rest of mankind, that word mankind is goyim. Remember what that word means? Gentiles. That the nations, the Gentiles, outside of the nation of Israel, will actually seek the Lord and be called by his name. James begins to remind them that scripture has taught this from the beginning and that Christ taught it himself, that there would be a remnant of the Gentiles that would call on the name of the Lord. So declarations have been made, okay? The issue is, is defined. Declarations have been made. Peter and James are in agreement. Chief apostles, chief elders, matter is settled. So here comes the decision about to be instituted. Look at verse 19. Therefore, this is James still talking. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what's, what's the decision here? It's, it's, it's really twofold. Lay off of them. Stop trying to put things, don't, stop trying to require extra things from them. It's grace alone. But then he, like, confusingly begins to say, and there's three restrictions according to Moses' law that you need to make sure you adhere to. We're going to get there, okay? Just, I'm going to leave you a little cliffhanger. So they decide to send this decision. This decision is grace alone, but here's a few restrictions. By letter with a delegation to the church in Antioch. Pick up in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in the, of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, right, the church in Jerusalem, and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, Choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you by the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been. Then he goes into those restrictions. Okay, I'm going to come back to there. Look at verse 30. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, verse 32, who were gifted in New Testament prophecy, which is encouragement and exhortation, remained in Antioch and encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right, so part, part one this morning is, is kind of concluded. The issue is defined. What actually is required for salvation? Is it grace alone? Is it grace plus works? And then the decision was reached. It's grace alone. But there's a few restrictions you also need to adhere to. So now let's look to, to the deeper principles at play. That I really think if we can grasp these principles, it'll aid us as we move through various dissensions and debates as well. Okay? Principle number one, to be a church that is unified, we must resist false gospels. We must resist false gospels. The issue at hand in, in Acts chapter 15, in this Jerusalem council, was a question of the gospel. What is actually required for somebody to be saved? And church, the true gospel teaches it is grace alone by faith alone. But the Judaizers, 
those in our context that are stirring up all this trouble, we're preaching a gospel plus, a gospel and, a gospel plus law. And church, can I just say that this type of false gospel is still alive in our churches today? Legalism. This is what legalism is. Legalism is a Christian life that is all about obeying certain rules and certain restrictions, doing certain things, and it is contrary to a gospel of grace alone. It's what we've talked about last week. Grace is effort, but, but it is opposed to earning. This gospel plus law is, is a gospel that is if you do these things, if you do certain things and, and, and don't do other things, then God will approve of you. God will accept you. God will pour out his favor on you. What does that sound like today? Like in today's culture, like what, like what does this type of gospel sound like? It sounds like you need to be baptized if you want to be saved. You, you need to practice Sabbath on a particular day if you're really a Christian. You better not drink. You better not cuss. Dancing is of the devil. Rock and roll is the antichrist. Whatever it is, all these do's, all these don'ts, you better clean yourself up for God to accept you. That's what's happening here. Church, this is a gospel plus, and anything added to the gospel of grace is a false gospel. Anything added to the cross of Christ actually belittles his grace. We have to resist false gospels. Gospel plus is a false gospel. So let me just really quickly say, if you grew up, if, if some of the background you're bringing into this church is, I've got to clean myself up to be accepted by God, let me just tell you, that's wrong. You do not have to clean yourself up to be approved by God. It is his grace that approves you. And let me just say it on behalf of our church. You don't have to clean yourself up to be a part of this church. Now, grace will change you. It will change the things that you do and the things that you don't do. But you do not change the things you do or don't do to have grace. You can't earn that, okay? So we resist this false gospel. But as I was preparing this week, I started thinking about maybe some other familiar false gospels that are, that are kind of rampant right now that I thought would be helpful if, if we just call them what they are. So you probably are familiar with a few of these, but let me list a few. The prosperity gospel. Anybody heard that, that statement before, the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus is a means to health and wealth and prosperity as opposed to a savior that reconciles you to God. In all of these Gospels, what's challenging is that often, especially in the prosperity Gospel, Scripture is quoted, right? Scripture is quoted, but I can promise you it's usually out of context. This Gospel is incredibly appealing because it teaches it, with Jesus you can live your best life now. And who doesn't want that, right? That's, that's appealing to us. It teaches if you have faith, you can be healed of all your infirmities. It teaches if you just name it and you can claim it, then you can have that, that promotion, that pay bump, that bonus, whatever it looks like God wants that for, you go offer and get it. But in that gospel, you won't hear much about a, a suffering servant. You won't hear a lot about a cost of discipleship, and you won't hear a lot about well-directed efforts towards grace. Church, we have to resist a false gospel because the prosperity gospel is an active attempt to dethrone Jesus and to enthrone mankind. It makes our desire, listen to this, it takes our desire for materialism, wealth, and health the ultimate aim of Christianity. But the ultimate aim of Christianity is not your desires. Jesus' desires. Things like acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And that's going to cost you, right? To walk in Jesus' desires, it will cost you. So this gospel 
Church, you've got to resist drink. Debate it. Descend to it. Resist the false gospel. Secondly, another gospel I see is, is um, I don't know what to call it, the self-help gospel. Uh, the central fallacy here is that the gospel is really just about you. This is a me first type of gospel. And, and man, I think churches are full of it. Um, sermons within this type of self-help gospel sound like motivational TED Talks. Um, they're full of scriptural references, so it sounds really right, but the focal point really isn't on the God of the Bible. It's really about you. And this is popular, really popular. You know why? Who doesn't want to hear a sermon about you? We all want to hear stuff about ourselves. So you'll hear things like how to defeat the Goliaths in your life. How can God help us cross your own Red Seas? Right? Avenues, three avenues for overcoming anxiety, four steps to a better marriage. There's all of these things. Now, now listen, does the Bible speak on anxiety? Yeah. On, on bettering your marriage? For sure. But those things are not the primary message of the gospel. Jesus will improve your anxiety and your marriage and everything else. But it's not going to sound like something Dr. Phil or Oprah would tell you. It's through the gospel. The self-help church is a false gospel. And if you're discerning, we'll begin to notice that, that all of these messages are about you. So then consequently, Jesus is just here to aid you in your self-improvement. Jesus is not an add-on. He is everything. Christ is the center of Christianity. It's not self. So we have to resist that false gospel. Descend to it. Debate it. That's what Acts 15 teaches us. Resist the false gospel. But let me give you another one that is going to offend some. The political gospel. Like, I don't know what else to call it. The message that really emerged strongly in 2020 that teaches people to put their hope in one particular party or another. One particular candidate or another. Church, our, our hope is not in any of that. You know what happens when governments cease to exist? Church remains. Are you, are you familiar with that? Like, it, it's going to happen. We, we are not called to ignore politics. Politics are important. The way that governments work have massive implications on our lives. We're not called to ignore that. But we are called to engage it differently. To be in allegiance to a kingdom run by a, a different king. And to call others' attention to that kingdom and to a different king. Resist this gospel. It's a bad place to put hope. Because it changes, like what, every four to eight years? Debate that. Dissent that. So that's what Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James did here. They didn't capitulate. They had no small dissension. They were willing to dissent. They were willing to debate. They were willing to resist a false gospel. But... As we keep going through Acts 15, we, we got to take it a step further. We don't just resist false gospels. We require the true one. That's, that's principle number two. Require the true gospel. A church that is unified requires faith by grace alone. Look at verse 11. Peter emphatically stated, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. James jumps in in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not add any additional requirements to them. It is by grace alone. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Our salvation, the, the fact that you get what you don't deserve because he took what you did deserve, it's all by grace. It's all a gift. I may get in a little trouble here, but um, I try to illustrate the gospel. I don't know if it's my pastor's heart, uh, you know, or just, just, I don't know. I try to illustrate the gospel as much as I can to my kids. 
uh, choosing different kinds of illustrations. And let me give you one. You feel free to copyright this. This is the right to copy. It, it worked really well one time, and it backfired big time the second time. I'm going to go ahead and share those with you. So I'm, my kids um, are in the room, and um, so I'm emotional. Um, y'all, they're just kids. I just want to say, they're not pastor's kids. Like, they're just kids. Just kids trying to learn how to live life, try to learn how to follow Jesus. And I'm trying to disciple them just the same way you guys are trying to disciple all of your kids. And, and sometimes, believe it or not, my kids do things that deserve consequences. They fail our standards. They, they don't do what we ask them to do. And in our household, if that is an escalated offense, the, the consequence for that is a spanking. It's a wooden spoon. Okay, so at age six, I have two kids that have reached that point. Um, at age six, I try to illustrate the gospel through the consequence of spanking. When our oldest did something that escalated and, and, and deserved that consequence, I, I told him, you, you failed our standard. You did not meet what we've asked you to do. You've disobeyed. You deserve this consequence, which, which is a spanking. He understood, but then I looked at him and said, I love you, and I'm merciful, and I'm gracious, and I'm going to take your consequence for you. So I gave him the spoon. Oh, man, he was so contrite. I won't even look at him. No, Daddy, I'll never do it. You know, I'll never do it. Illustrated that with my second born, and um, <laughs> he wore me out. <laughs> um, but the message is true, okay? The message, the message is true. That's salvation. That, that's the gospel. That, that in his grace, in his love, he's willing to take our consequence for us. It's grace. It's all by grace. So we resist false gospels. We require the true gospel, but, but really James's confusion here in verse 19 leads us to a final principle. Let's look back, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, this is the key, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. All right, so James says, no, no, grace alone. But then he immediately lists three mosaic restrictions. Like, what is going on here? Like, this is confusing, isn't it? Like, is James being hypocritical? Like, is he teaching us how to ride a fence? Like, what it looks like to not be one or the other? But, but before I answer that, look at the three restrictions r- really quickly. The first is food eaten to uh, idols. Eating food offered to idols was a huge part of pagan idolatry. A, a huge, like, like, foundation in Gentile culture. And that was incredibly offensive to monotheistic Jews. And as Paul wrote, that in Christ, there's no such thing as an idol. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. I'll reference this in a second. He says there's no God but one. So there isn't anything inherently wrong with eating various foods. But James is saying, just, just don't do it. You know why? Because in every city, Gentiles, that you have churches... There are Jews there. And when you do that, you're going to needlessly offend Jewish brothers and sisters, or you're going to offend the gospel, and they're going to have a wall, a barrier to acceptance of the gospel. I'm going to drive that home in just a second. The the second one is sexual immorality. Sexual promiscuity is an obvious offense to both Jews and Gentiles before God, but that's not what is meant here. Again, a part of Gentile culture revolved around temple prostitution, various sex rites. So James was saying, have nothing to do with those former ways of worship. Don't approve of them. It's repulsive to the monotheistic Jewish holy people of God. Third one is strangled meat. Strangled meat retains blood. 
Jewish law, though, demanded that any animals eaten must have the blood completely drained. So eating the blood of animals was one of the most offensive Gentile practices to the Jewish community. So James says, in order to avoid needless offense, restrict your eating. What he's saying is there's nothing wrong with a raw steak. But if you're surrounded by other Jews, maybe just get it medium well. So that you don't, you don't hurt fellowship. And that's the principle. Restrict some of your freedoms for the sake of fellowship. Salvation is by grace alone, but maybe you should restrict some of your freedom for the sake of fellowship. Although free from all of these rituals, embrace them for the sake of fellowship. Because there were Jews scattered throughout all of these cities. And Paul addresses this so directly in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. I encourage you to read it this week. Concerning food to offer to idols, he, he says this, We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and you're no better off if you do. Listen to this. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to others. Paul says, listen, I'm freed from the law. Because Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law for all of those who believe. But in approaching the Jews, he would conform to Jewish practices in order to win the Jews. And as long as Gentile practices weren't biblically, uh, biblically immoral, he would, uh, he would take on Gentile practices in order to win the Jews. He writes, all things are lawful. Everything is permissible for those that are in Christ, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are constructive. Not all things are profitable to maintain fellowship. So the principle is, church, you need to restrict some of your freedoms for the sake of fellowship. Avoid certain actions that, that although it may be permissible for you, it could hinder the faith of your brother or your sister. Lay down your rights and your preferences instead of always asserting them. Right? So what does this look like? I mean, the, the applications are endless. Is alcohol permissible or impermissible to a Christian? Newsflash, half of you will say yes, half of you will say no. According to Acts 15, let me ask, is, is that a gospel issue? Do we debate, dissent, and divide over that? No, we just may need to restrict your freedoms for the sake of fellowship. Let me ask you another one. Should Christians vote red or vote blue? Some in this room will say red. Some in this room will say blue. Is that a gospel issue? No. So do we debate and dissent and divide over that? No, no, no. We, we restrict some of our preferences and our freedoms for the sake of fellowship. Now, let me give you a caveat on this. Are there political issues that pertain to biblical morality? Absolutely. Debate them. Discuss those. But at the end of the day, th here's your litmus test. Can somebody who votes different than you be a Christian? If you hesitate in answering that, my fear is you have bought into the false gospel that political parties bring you hope. Should music be traditional or contemporary? Should I preach out of the KJV or the ESV? Altar calls or no altar calls? Should Christian families homeschool or public school? On and on and on we could go. The principle here from Acts 15 is to ask, is this a gospel issue? If the answer is no, what do we do? Do we debate, dissent, and divide? No, we restrict our freedoms for the sake of fellowship. Does that mean we, we can't disagree? Yeah, let's go to coffee. We can disagree. But at the end of the day, we can hug and fellowship and go, you're my brother and my sister in Christ, and that's more important than this. In the church, in, in this church, there are various beliefs, traditions, stances on things that will bring division and dissension. I just hope we can apply Acts 15. Is this a gospel issue? If not, I hope we can restrict some of our freedoms, lay aside some of our preferences, and fight for the fellowship of the faith. So let me conclude for us. 
here's some principles for learning how to live with other Christians that are different than you. We have to resist false gospels. We have to require the true gospel. We have to restrict our freedoms to fellowship. And what's really awesome about Acts 15 is the wisdom and the authority to which they handled this had two outcomes. The Gentile mission was flung wide open. If they would have decided differently, what would have happened? What would have happened to the spread of the gospel among Gentile nations? It wasn't jeopardized because of the wisdom in which they handled this, but neither was the fellowship of Jews and Gentiles. That's beautiful. The mission continued, and the fellowship continued as well. And I believe that we can really learn from that today. If we can apply these principles, I, I hope that our mission will continue. If we continue to reach other people, that it won't be jeopardized. But I also pray that our fellowship with those that are different from us won't be jeopardized as well. So let me pray for us, and then our team will come back up and lead us through, through a song of response. Lord, we're so grateful for you. Christ, this is such an emphasis of your heart that we would be one as you and the Father are one. But the truth is we are so different from each other. But what an opportunity to reflect the unifying power of the gospel. All of us bring our, our different beliefs, different backgrounds, different behaviors, different practices, different stances, different postures, different all kinds of things. But yet in you we can be one. But apart from you we can't. So help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be a church. Help our leaders of this church to be a church that resists false gospels. So, so easy to buy into these things. And Lord, I just pray for wisdom, for discernment, for courage to not capitulate, to be like Peter and James and Barnabas and Paul, to fight for what is true, to resist these false gospels, and to continue to preach the true one. And we are so grateful for the truth of the real gospel. That there's nothing we can do to earn our standing with you. It is something that you did for us. We've looked at a couple of weeks ago, you were condemned for us, although guiltless, so that we, although guilty, can be justified in you. It's all by your grace. May we continue to magnify the truth of that gospel. And then finally, Lord, give us wisdom and strength to disagree, but to not to dissent, not to slip into division, but to restrict some of our preferences and our freedoms for the sake of fellowship. It takes so much love, it takes so much energy, it takes so much self-control. We love to be right, but pray we wouldn't magnify being right over relationship. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.